night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and uh, we find ourselves in the Gospel of Mark. We've been here a couple of weeks. If you're with us tonight and uh, you are uh, here without a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now that love to remedy that for you. They've got Bibles. You just wave to them, and they'll put a Bible in your hand, mark to where we're studying this evening. And if you don't own a Bible, please, would you make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you uh, this evening? In Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, and we kind of uh, entered in, broached uh, verse 21, the last time we were together, is we're told that uh, then they, Jesus and the disciples that he had called, went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath day, he entered the synagogue and he taught. Uh, He has now called four of uh, disciples to now follow him. They left their uh, ship uh, fishing business in order to, to do that, and uh, Jesus has been, by this point in his uh, public ministry, he's been rejected by his hometown of Nazareth, and so he makes the city of Capernaum uh, now a, a ruin on, the, on the, uh, the Sea of Galilee, but then a bustling city. He makes this the center of his, his public ministry. And immediately, as we saw last time, the first time the Sabbath came by after entering into the city, uh, he uh, entered into the synagogue and he taught. Jesus was eager to fellowship and uh, eager to assemble together with the saints. He's given the opportunity to teach in a synagogue. If you were to attend a synagogue even today, there's a, a very specific kind of uh, order to the service, and it always involves uh, a teaching from the Word of God. Je- Jesus, by this particular point in his public ministry, he has become known uh, as a rabbi. He's become notable as a teacher. And so his presence within the, the synagogue, uh, they extend the invitation to him now uh, to, uh, to minister uh, uh, the Word of God. And, uh, and, and so he taught, and they were astonished at his teaching for, and that word for is worth circling, it's a reason word, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. The interesting thing here with Mark's uh, record of this particular event is he doesn't tell us anything about what Jesus taught. He doesn't tell us what passage he taught or what were uh, the points of the passage. That's not his focus. That's not uh, his concern in the gospel that he writes. Uh, But what he does bring to the forefront for us is uh, the way in which he taught, that he uh, taught them with authority and the effect that it had upon the listeners. They were told that uh, as he preaches this sermon to them, this uh, breaking down of the Word of God, to read the Word of God, explain what it says, uh, and then apply it to our life. And as they listened to this, coming from Jesus' life, uh, we're told that they were astonished at his teaching. Now, the word astonished is uh, kind of an understatement in, uh, in terms of the original language because uh, you've got to encapsulate the reaction that they had to a single word in, in, in a translation. But the word literally means that they were astounded. Uh, They were struck out of their senses. Uh, They were overwhelmed uh, as if to be struck by a blow. And the idea is that when he taught the Word of God, uh, that they were deeply, deeply impacted by his teaching. 
and were told specifically why they were impacted and why they were astonished. It was for a very specific reason. It was that he taught uh, the Word of God as one having authority and not as the scribes. In those days, the scribes were kind of the religious experts along with kind of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but in the time of Jesus, there were no printing presses, of course, and so everything that was, every book uh, that was in existence was handwritten. It was, co- it was a copy, a hand copy uh, of, of another book. And so what the scribes did is their entire life was given over to uh, being copyists of the Word of God. And because of their kind of close relationship with the Word of God, they they kind of became known as the experts in the law or the experts in uh, in the Old uh, Old Testament. And so uh, they they studied it. They knew the Scriptures inside and out. The problem that happened with the scribes is that over over time, uh, this handling of the Word of God became very, very academic. Uh, for them, very uh, uh, systematic kind of, and, and increasingly the Bible became to them supremely uh, a, a, a book that God had kind of filled with discussion fodder. It was filled with all kinds of uh, stories and all kinds of commands and all kinds of different things that, uh, you know, were, uh, were given, you know, supremely to, as subjects to debate or to discuss. And by the time Jesus comes on the scene in that uh, in that uh, synagogue there in Capernaum. Apparently, they'd had a, a long string of, of uh, scribes teaching there in that, that synagogue, and they noticed the distinction between the teaching and the authority of Jesus' teaching and the authority of, of the scribes. And so, by the time uh, uh, Jesus' time, the scribes are largely living inside of, of their heads. And they've become so close in kind of studying the, the minutiae uh, of the Word of God and so influenced by their own ideas and other ideas of other people related to the Word of God and, and this, this kind of thing that um, they, uh, they became completely unsure that the Bible spoke clearly and authoritatively about anything. And so when a scribe would get up to teach, a scribe would not get up and read a passage of Scripture and say, this is what God is telling us here from this passage, and this is how it applies to our lives. It wouldn't be that authoritative. Uh, What they would do is they would get up and they would read a passage, and nobody had the oomph, you know, to get up and and, uh, do this kind of thing. And so they would get up and they would just give you all the varying opinions of the different rabbis related to a passage and then allow you to come to your conclusion about which one you wanted to believe so as not to offend anyone within the synagogue. And so they would say, Rabbi Cohen believes this about the passage. Uh, Rabbi Hillel believes this about the passage. Rabbi Shimei believes this about the passage. And there was no authority. It was just all of this floating of things out uh, to the people, and they could do with it whatever they wanted. They could accept it or reject it, or they could come up with their own uh, their own interpretation uh, of what what the passage uh, 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 meant. And uh, and so uh, they'd leave it, uh, leave it all to the, the audience rather than rightly dividing the word of truth as, as we're told. Whenever you have that kind of uh, attitude toward the word of God or that kind of, of a way of teaching or presenting the word of God in, in, a, in a spiritual environment, I think that people are going to react typically one of two ways. Uh, they will begin to think that the Bible doesn't say anything definitely. 
And uh, they'll come to the idea that the Bible is just something that was written there so that people could come up with a variety of ideas about it and believe anything they want about the Bible. The Bible was never written as a revelation. It's never written to, uh, you know, to command. It's never written in an authoritative way related to our lives. You can take it or leave it, or you can come up with your own ideas. And that lack of, of authority in the teaching of the Word of God is going to begin to uh, allow that kind of an attitude toward the Word of God to develop uh, within a person. Or, on the other end of the the spectrum, I think it just produces frustration in those that understand that the Bible was given for a reason. There's a purpose. These commandments are in the Bible. These uh, parables are in the Bible. These lessons concerning Jesus' life, the book of Acts are in the Bible. They're all in the Bible for a reason. And let's not pretend that they're not here for a reason. And it's clear what God is saying in this passage. Why won't you just simply say what is so, you know, patently obvious for anyone that wants to to read the passage and and, and is is honest and and people get frustrated? Why not just say what it says and let the chips fall where they may? But, But your job is to get up there and say that or get out of the silly wooden box and stop, uh, uh, stop, stop doing it and uh and and so you get these kind of kind of reactions and it's this environment that uh, spiritual environment that jesus rose up to speak into and he rises and they see something entirely different in him and he taught them as one uh, having authority he declared to them read the passage declared what it meant, declared what it it means uh, to our lives. It's the application, what uh, God is saying to us through through this this passage. He doesn't quote Hillel. He doesn't quote Cohen. He doesn't quote Shemai. He doesn't quote any of them. All that matters is not what they say about it. It's fine if we quote another person to come alongside the obvious meaning that God has uh, concerning the passage. Nothing wrong with that. But all that really matters about the passage is what does God have to say uh, about the passage? Who cares about anybody else's opinion uh, uh, related uh, to it? And the fact that God had said it was reason enough to teach it uh, with authority and, uh, and so, so he did, and he taught it. He, this is how uh, we are, this is what we are to believe, and this is how we are to live uh, in, in light of what the Word of God has to say. And so he spoke as if he believed the Scriptures and, and uh, spoke as if he knew uh, God personally. This whole thing of, uh, concerning Jesus uh, teaching with authority, and, and by the way, an authority that is unique to him. Uh, maybe this, this is, you've had this experience in your Christian life. Um, I have it on a regular basis. I happen to listen to an awful lot of preaching. I, I, uh, on any given week, um, I, I'm able to shoehorn a, a lot of, uh, of uh, a Bible teaching in uh, between my golf games uh, and... Uh, and uh, and, and golf is fine, it's great, it's, but everybody thinks that's what we do all week. But I'm constantly listening to, to Bible teaching, good Bible teaching. And, uh, and most of the time when I'm in an environment on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night, I'm teaching the Word of God. But uh, it, it, it isn't infrequent for me to also be attending a church and sitting and listening in the same way that you, uh, you are now. And I'm listening to the person uh, teach the Word of God, and he's teaching, and he's teaching, and he's teaching it, and, and I'm listening, and I'm listening, and I'm listening, 
And sometimes I'll listen to someone, and I see what the path is they're going with it, and I see the point that they're uh, bringing out of it, and uh, I may not be that certain about it. Uh, I may be very, very uneasy about, uh, wait a second, I don't know that that's exactly what the Bible is saying about that subject from that passage. And so, I've got my guard up. I'm not, I'm not a, I don't have a critical spirit, but I'm discerning about what I, what I uh, am listening to. And, uh, and so, here they are there uh, bringing out the, the, the Scriptures, and, and, uh, and, and then the one thing I'm waiting for is if I'm on the fence at all related to it, if the person then says, and remember, Jesus said, and he quotes something from the life and the teaching of Jesus, and, and it's in its proper context and it applies to the subject, immediately I release myself into the truth. I accept that. that is, that's a biblical truth. That is, that is the truth of of that passage, because Jesus is the authoritative voice on any subject related to the Bible or related to, to, to life. And that's why we feel that. Even maybe you have in, in this room, where we're kind of, you're listening maybe to a Sunday morning or something. It's easy. I mean, we're in the Gospels. Jesus is saying everything here. But on a Sunday morning, and you say, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And then in the last five minutes of the sermon, I say, and remember Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. And then you speak it, and you realize, that's it. He did say that. And then we're released into the truth, and then we embrace it. And, and it speaks to uh, Jesus' authority related to, to the Word of God and, and, uh, and to bring it back to the authoritative voice uh, concerning uh, the, the Scriptures. And that's why we feel that kind uh, of, of release. I think it's always a good rule of thumb. And I encourage myself and exhort myself, and I would certainly encourage anyone who's uh, teaching uh, the Word of God that if we ever want to speak authoritatively on any subject, that the sermon must always at some point be brought back to Jesus. Uh, the volume of the book testifies of Him. And, and it is when we bring that truth back to Jesus and we show it something that He has taught, then the, the audience, the congregation, God's people immediately recognize, yes, that is authoritative for my life. And there is a sense in which no Bible study is actually complete. It hasn't been taken to its authoritative end, no matter how good it is, unless ultimately somewhere within it, uh, the truth that's being conveyed is brought back to Jesus, brought back to His life and His uh, teaching. No subject in the Bible has been properly explored or, or addressed until it includes His, his authoritative voice. So here he is, and he gets up and, uh, and speaks, and, uh, and everybody's ready to go out to breakfast after this. That's, oh, wow, that's something. That's, that was a jaw-dropping handling of the Word of God. Uh, but that service wasn't over yet. Uh, there's more dynamic to happen. This is why you never want to miss church. You don't know what's going to happen in the synagogue or at church. Now, there was in that same synagogue 
there was, uh, there was a man in their synagogue. And, and it's interesting that uh, once, uh, you know, God's Word isn't taught authoritatively, it's no longer God's synagogue, it's their synagogue. And, and so, there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. And so here you have this demon-possessed man. He is uh, there within within the church uh, within the church service, and uh, uh, and and uh, nothing is troubling him. Evidently, week by week in the in the synagogue service, so demon-possessed, and at Jesus' teaching, he cries out, and he says, "Let us alone! For what do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth?" Did you come to destroy us? And uh, speaking probably of him, the demon speaking of himself and the man he was demon possessing, uh, was possessing, the demon seems to have the idea that he cannot be uh, cast out of this man without also uh, killing him as a result of it. Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, uh, you put yourself in that synagogue, and everybody's got Marty Feldman eyes at this particular point in time, right? They're just coming, they're just coming to synagogue that morning, and they're going to they're going to listen to some uh, uh, scribe drone on about uh, this man's theory about this and that man's theory about all of this. Now they get this sermon from Jesus, something like they've never heard in their whole lives, and then now uh, whatever it is that's about him, he's stirring up the demonic spirits that have evidently been comfortable up to this point uh, in the synagogue and, and gets kind of a, a reaction out of them. It is interesting that, it, I mean, he, he calls out to Jesus, let us alone, and, uh, and, and, and uh, uh, the, the demon is actually, uh, if, if this synagogue had kind of gone liberal or whatever, uh, this demon is uh, deeply theological concerning Jesus. You notice that he calls him Jesus of Nazareth. He acknowledges Jesus' humanity. He says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God, speaking of his deity. This is, uh, is as we know from the book of James, there are no uh, atheist demons. They all believe that God exists. And they tremble at his existence. And here, here is this uh, acknowledgement of this, this uh, knowing who Jesus is and, and disturbed by his presence. Jesus then uh, rebuked him, and he said to him, be quiet. He doesn't need any advertising from the demonic realm. And then he commanded him, uh, come out of him. And that was uh, uh, the command uh, given. And then, and when the unclean spirit had convulsed him, he's going to give him kind of one more gut shot before he comes out, and uh, came out of him, he cried with a loud voice, and, and this demonic spirit uh, came uh, out of him. The demon absolutely forced to obey him. I don't know about you and in, in what kind of or level of uh, contact you ha- have had in your life with the demonic realm. Um, it's interesting, a number of times on trips that we've taken to Israel, we go uh, to an, uh, an area called Gadara, where that, 
uh, that the, the demoniacs were and where this legion uh, of demons was uh, uh, possessing uh, one of those men. And uh, every so often as we talk about the power of Jesus related to the demonic realm at, at that particular site, someone will come and tell me their story of what they have come out of. And it doesn't have to be tarot cards or it doesn't have to be uh, Ouija boards or out-and-out out Satan worship or something like that. Uh, I've had more people talk about religious systems that they were in that were associated, claimed to be associated with Christ and were nothing of the sort. And, and the demonic oppression in, in that particular uh, system. But at a very young age for me, uh, I uh, be became exposed to, uh, to the power of the demonic realm. I won't get uh, into the specifics uh, of it. You don't uh, need to know that. I didn't need any horror movies. I didn't need any of these things to feed these kind of things uh, from into my life. From the very beginning, I recognized that this realm was real. I saw it. I could feel it in this realm. And I can't tell you what it means to me to walk as a Christian and to realize in, in 1 John 4, 4, as John said, greater is he that is in you as a Christian, that is the Holy Spirit, than he that is in the world, speaking of the devil. And what a privilege it is to be able to live as Christians and to have no fear of the demonic realm. Yes, there's oppression. Yes, there's spiritual warfare. Yes, it can be uh, massively intense but never a single concern uh, that this thing can take possession of my life, uh, the recognition that Jesus in me is greater than that realm. And what's been lifted off, I can't speak for you, but what's been lifted off of my life, the peace that I have from, from the, just that alone. It is interesting when you look at, and uh, somebody is clearly demon-possessed, and they're going to do an exorcism or try to cast the demon out of them. Uh, they never do it in Allah's name. They never do it in Buddha's name. They never do it in, in the name of one of the Hindu gods or anything like that. It's always Jesus' name. And there's that recognition of the authority that he uniquely has over that realm, not just as it's demonstrated in the Bible, but that as that authority has been de demonstrated throughout church history, even to this day, and when somebody needs a demon to be cast out of them or a, out of a loved one, always it's someone associated with Jesus that's brought in uh, to to do that. But what a blessing to be uh, indwelt by the one who is greater than this, uh, that the other realm and provide such a, a protection in our life uh, as, as a result of it. When he says to him, be, be quiet there in verse 25, it literally means uh, be muzzled. And Jesus is addressing the demon in the same way that you would address uh, kind of a, a wild beast. And, and out the man, uh, the demon comes out of the man, and then they were all amazed. And so this is a day for amazing things uh, for them at the synagogue, so that they question among themselves. They began to talk with each other in light of what they've just seen, and they said, what is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority, he not only teaches, but he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Now, you've you got to put yourself in their shoes. 
Again, they thought, we're going to come to church, we're going to come to the synagogue, we're going to listen to these, fair, these, these scribes drone on and on and on about this remote aspect of religion and not, and, and instead what they come, and they experience the teaching, and then they experience the power of God evidenced in a changed life, uh, and changing it from absolute darkness into light. In an instant, I'll tell you, it would have really, really been uh, something to, to be there. I'm thankful for the record of it. And immediately as a result of this, his fame spread throughout all of the region around Galilee, the, the Sea of Galilee, which is where uh, Capernaum is. And so from this point on, Jesus is never going to be able to pass through a single town in the Galilee region, the northern region of Israel, uh, anonymously again for the rest of his life and for the rest of, uh, of his, his, uh, his ministry. Now, following all of this, after the, the, the synagogue service, uh, as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered into the house of Simon and Andrew uh, with James and John. But Simon, this is, we know him as the Apostle Peter, Simon's wife's mother, this is a problem for Roman Catholicism because you've got the first pope married here. He's got a mother-in-law. And I don't say that to take a cheap shot at Roman Catholicism. Um, but if you come from that background, and it's important for uh, any of us who are watching the news to recognize uh, what is happening, this, this false and... Uh, uh, um, uh, extra-biblical uh, standard that is put upon priests within Roman Catholicism that they cannot marry and, uh, and, and to live in a state that many of them are, are not intended and don't have the gift of celibacy. It's going to create the kind of problems uh, that it is creating. It has no basis anywhere in, in the Word of God. And so it's just going to continue to be this unfolding catastrophe uh, that always happens when we add uh, restrictions to, and, and add commandments to God's Word beyond what God's Word already says. Uh, Simon Peter, he was married. He had a mother-in-law. And as they came uh, into the house of, of Peter and Andrew, uh, his, his wife's mother lay there sick with a fever, and they told him about uh, her uh, it, at once. And so he came in, and he took her by the hand, and he lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she served them. And so he healed her, and, 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 and the healing is so uh, complete that she now has the strength to get up, not this long two or three days recovering from the flu or whatever the fever was and, and all, uh, but immediately healed and now the power to do the very thing that she wanted to do, and that was to serve them, but unable to do because she was sick and, and probably to uh, supply uh, a meal uh, uh, to them. I, I think that the, when, you, when you put this healing of Peter's mother-in-law in the middle of what happened in the synagogue and what's going to happen at sundown on that Sabbath as we get to verse 32. I think this is kind of interjected in here to help us to realize that God cares about everything within our lives. 
And sometimes we can think, well, you know, uh, Jesus is only about casting out demons in the synagogue and, and preaching and then uh, cleansing lepers and these kind of things and, and taking care of cancer and all. Uh, I've just got this fever and I've got this, this flu. I'm not going to take it to him. Uh, why would he be concerned about something like that? But the Bible, and this is a great verse because some Christians actually believe that related to themselves. It's kind of like, why would I bring this little thing to God? I'll just carry it and take care of it myself. But the Bible says that we're to cast all of our cares on Him because He cares for us. There is no big or small with Him. And so the importance of taking everything to God, uh, the big things, uh, uh, the things that uh, we would consider to be relatively small, and to take those things to Him as well, and who knows what it is that He might, he might do with it. And then at evening, it's the evening of that same Sabbath day, and for the Jewish uh, way of measuring days. Uh, the, the Sabbath day ended at, at sunset. I th forget how many stars they have to see in the sky, uh, in, in the, uh, the evening sky, and then they, re they uh, then announced that the Sabbath is over. During the Sabbath, their traveling is, is limited to a very short distance. And so now it's evening, the sun had set, all these stars are now shining, the Sabbath is over, and so now with the freedom now to move uh, the word of what happened in that synagogue. I mean, that, the word of that went everywhere. It went all through Capernaum, went out into the surrounding regions, and these people are ready to move on, on what it is they heard. And so they brought to him, and uh, that word brought, it means they kept caring to him. Uh, people are bringing all of their friends, all of their relatives, everybody that they know that's got some kind of a problem, all who are sick and those who are demon-possessed. They bring this entire sea of people uh, to that house that Jesus is in. The whole city was gathered together at the door. Don't picture New York City. Picture a city, uh, a, a village-like city in those days. And this just massive needy humanity out uh, before that door in front of the house. I think it's another uh, uh, picture, uh, portrait within the Bible that's waiting for a master painter uh, to paint. The desperation, the everything that's in, in everyone's eyes. I don't know about you, but when I go to a museum, I like all of the, uh, you know, I like Van Gogh and I like Monet and and. Well, those are the only other names that I know except for Rembrandt, so don't be terribly impressed. But I like to go up and down and look at the Dutch masters and all of this thing. That's not coffee. That's, these are real painters. And, uh, and I like all, but the thing that I love most in going through a museum is to, no matter who painted it, is to go to the, the paintings of the biblical scenes and to see how they represent them. There's Jesus and leotards. We know there's someone who never went to Israel, uh, but travel was harder in the Middle Ages, and so we can still appreciate it. Uh, but, you know, how they, uh, how they uh, portray it for us, I, I, I love to watch it. And, and sometimes you, you just look at it and you go, this person has got to, it's like Rembrandt. It's like he, he, he I don't know what his spiritual condition was, but what he saw in these scenes that he painted from biblical scenes, it was like uh, he either was born again and got it by the Holy Spirit, or he was very well taught and not born again. I, 
I don't know about his spiritual condition. I'll Google it later tonight, uh, so don't send me anything on it, uh, unless you want to. Uh, but uh, imagine as you see the scene before you, and then what does he do? He healed many who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons, and he did not allow the demons uh, to speak because they uh, knew him. And so, wow, what a day from the beginning in the synagogue all the way till beyond uh, nightfall. And then we would tend to look at it and say, you know, about, uh, we know about all we need to really know as, as students of the Bible or as followers of Jesus. We know about all we really need to know about that day. We saw the power, we, the authority in the teaching, and, and his love and concern for the individual and also for the multitude. And, uh, and yet, uh, Mark would say, au contraire. Uh, you can know all about what's been recorded here on that previous day and never understand what, it, what, what was at the core of it, what was at the heart of it. And so he reveals it to us in verse 35. Now, in the morning, the following morning, I mean, you would think that Jesus would have said, wow, I mean, I don't, I don't want to see another person till after my third cup of coffee. Like Winston Churchill, I, I'm not going to come out until I've read four daily newspapers and sat in the bath. I'll see you at noon. But that's not what happens. Now, in the morning, Jesus, having risen long before daylight, long before day, daybreak, and he went out from the city of Capernaum, and he departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. And he breaks away, and, and he... Uh, and he begins to spend time with the Lord and what we would call for our lives is uh, his, uh, you know, kind of we would call a daily devotional for us. But all of that's happened the day before. He goes out the next morning, and this is what he engages in. He goes before, before daylight when the day is beginning. I think the devotional time with the Lord to begin the day is the best time because we get to dedicate the day to the Lord at the very beginning. We begin the conversation with God that we want to continue all the way through the day. If we do our quiet time kind of at lunchtime or at the end of the day, a lot of water's under the bridge by that time. And so he goes to a solitary place where he knows he's not going to be uh, interrupted, and there he prayed, and he, and he communed with the Father. And then Simon and those who were with him, the other disciples, they wake up in the morning and they find him gone and they send out a search party to find him. And when they found him, they interrupt this, this quiet time, this solitariness with Jesus, and they, they uh, interrupt all of it with, uh, with the words that are almost designed to uh, produce a, sen a sense of anxiety or urgency within his life. Everyone's looking for you. Where are you? What are you doing out here? Do you know what you did on the, just the day before there in Capernaum? We got momentum on our side. What are you doing out here? Let's keep this thing going. Let's hire a tent and get some sawdust. We got some meetings to have uh, here. We got a base for um, something significant really happening. And if you've never, ever read that little booklet called The Tyranny of the Urgent, you really must. Every Christian must uh, read it. And it's very inexpensive. I think it's just 99 cents or something like that. And if you can't afford it, Pastor Tom will be happy to pick that up for you. Um, 
But uh, the, the, the track called The Tyranny of the Urgent, it, it basically uh, states the fact that uh, the urgent and the important are not always the same thing in life. In fact, they're rarely the same thing. And the risk that we run in our Christian lives is continually under the urgency of life. And even people like the disciples and even ministry to come in and push out what is important in life. And there is nothing more important in life than the time that is spent with God to begin the day. And isn't it amazing what… Uh, what urgent matters can enter our minds when we're uh, communing with God in prayer and the reading of the Word of God in, in the morning. I just have a little notepad. I always have it when I'm doing that. And I just write those th things down as they uh, come to my mind. I just thank the devil for it. Thank you so much for letting me be aware of that. I'll write that down and go on about my business here. And, uh, and, but always that kind of, that interruption with, you know, what you're, you're, wasting a, you're wasting a block of time that could be used for something uh, significant in, in the day. You're already behind schedule in, in terms of you're never going to be able to get to everything that you're going to get to uh, in, in the day uh, anyway. And, and so they come in and, and interrupt him in this way. And then Jesus said to them, and it's really fascinating, uh, he didn't push back or anything. Uh, he just told them what they're going to do next. He said, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. And what he basically does is he communicates to them the direction that he had received from the Father on that day for what they were to do next. I mean, the, the mind, the intellect, the, the common sense would tell you, stay in Capernaum, uh, build on what happened here yesterday, and, uh, and do it sooner rather than later. We've got the momentum on our side, and, and, and so often we assess things that way in life, and yet God had a completely different thing that He wanted Jesus to do the next day and the disciples with Him, and we will never know those things apart from apart from that time that is spent with God uh, in, in, uh, in beginning the day uh, in this way. It is one of the, the most supernatural aspects of the Christian life is His leading and speaking to us uh, out, of, out of our uh, uh, devotional uh, life. And so, it's interesting what he says, let us go into the next towns. The word towns there in the, uh, in the original language, it means uh, the unwalled villages. It means a very small town. We would call it a hick town. And so Jesus is saying, no, no, here's what the Father has for the agenda for us, is to leave this great revival that's begun in Capernaum, and He wants us to go to a hick town now and preach the gospel there. No one would have told Jesus uh, what to do there, and nobody would have come up with that except Jesus and, uh, and the Father telling, uh, the Father rather telling uh, Jesus to, uh, to do that. I think that um, again, we see uh, the power of Jesus' life. We see the operation of His ministry. And, 
and we recognize the baptism of the Holy Spirit within his life. We recognize his surrender to the Father as a key to uh, the success of, of his public ministry. Remember, Jesus did not minister out of his deity. He, he, he never ceased to be divine in his entire public ministry, uh, but he, he operated in his incarnation out of his humanity. When he was tempted by the devil, he didn't, say to the, he didn't deal with the devil out of his deity. He could have done it in an instant, said, flame on, and he's a pile of ash out in the Judean wilderness. But he said, I'm going to show all of my disciples how to deal with temptation out of their humanity, because they're not divine in the way that I am. And I will show and model for my disciples what a person is able to do in the face of spiritual warfare when they're surrendered to God and operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. And here we get another glimpse into that key is, is the devotional life that time that is spent with God. And it it was a part of the supernatural of Jesus doing what the Father had called him to do, and and so it is with us. I I, I know that you you cannot force a person, cannot force a Christian uh, to develop a daily devotional life in their life. I've tried it. Tried it in my own life as a young Christian. It, it has to be something that one day we, we get in, in, to, in the course of our life and we just, uh, and with just the pull of the Holy Spirit upon our lives and, and that realization that, uh, I, that this is more important to me, uh, to receive from God, to receive spiritually what He gives at this time in my life is more important to me than anything that would try and crowd it out. And then ultimately you get where uh, an older guy like me is, you just simply can't get by without it. You just simply can't get by a day without it. That's how uh, hard he builds the, the dependence uh, toward it. But I, I, it isn't an exaggeration. I would say it is, is, a, is a, a statistic from my own experience especially when I, I did a lot more counseling in the old days, that when I would listen to somebody talk about the situation and that situation and the problem and the marriage and the, and the children and then the this and the temptation and the whole thing and all, and, and I would uh, more often than not say, now tell me a little bit about your relationship with God. Tell me a little bit about um, your devotional life. And literally nine times out of ten, it just simply wasn't there. And I respected people for being honest about it. It's not easy to, to do that. And I think that there's just that idea that people think, well, that's just what preachers uh, ask people. This is just like a standard, this is the two aspirin and water and talk to me in a morning kind of, uh, of a thing that they talk to just deflect from really, really, uh, you know, handling the problem that I'm facing. And yet it is this that is at the core of being able to handle any problems within our life. I think that the person, and I don't say this uh, to condemn in any way, but the Christian who does not have this kind of daily time with the Lord is a Christian who is still in the dark about the fact that Christianity is a relationship. That's what it is first and foremost. Above everything else, it is a relationship. God didn't save us because he wanted a, a workforce, a volunteer workforce, so we could build, uh, you know, the pyramids like, uh, you know, Pharaoh's time. He saved us for personal relationship. That's ev- then everything else comes out of that. 
And it's wonderful. It always encourages me and even exhorts me, as, and I need it as much as, as anyone, the importance of this in Jesus' life and, and in our life as well. Now, Aleppo then comes to Jesus in the course of, of all of this, and uh, he implored uh, Jesus, in, in, in not only imploring him, this is the verbal side of it, but then kneeling down to him and saying to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, another beautiful portrait here. A leper, having leprosy, um, you basically rotted to death. That's what happened. Uh, the nerve, uh, the nerve, and the nerve endings would die in your life, in in your body, and uh, and uh, the ends of your fingers would begin to wear off. They'd be nibbled off by rats in the night. You have no feeling in your fingers or your toes or your nose, and they could come up and nibble to their uh, their uh, uh, delight all through the night on you, and you would never feel it to to shoo them away or would just wear away from stubbing your foot against this thing and against that thing, and because you have no feeling in it, you look down and you see the thing is open wound and bleeding again. It's the tenth time that you've done it. And then pretty soon you just end up with these kind of clubs for feet and clubs for hands. And the smell of, of a leper, they weren't allowed to be near anyone other than a leper. They had to call out, unclean, unclean, leper, leper, to keep people away. And yet here's this man. And he, he is in such a desperate strait related to being cleansed from his leprosy uh, that he risks all, uh, violating even the law of Moses to come this close to speak to Jesus and the desperation of it. And he said, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And then Jesus said, have you never read in Leviticus that you're to keep a distance? No, he didn't. He was moved with compassion. He stretched out his hand. And he touched him. We don't know the last time this leper had ever been touched by a non-leper. How many months or years that it had been. And Jesus touched him. It says a lot about his heart. And he said to him, I am willing. Be cleansed. And as soon as he had spoken it, immediately the leprosy left him. And uh, he was cleansed. The... the Interesting thing about, you know, is, is, is Jesus makes this statement, I am willing, be cleansed. You kind of think, well, um, can I claim that related to like an illness that I might have or some kind of a disease that I might have? And uh, does Jesus say, I, uh, you, you know, I am willing, be cleansed to all of that? It, it, it's important to recognize that he stated this related to leprosy. And, and you, you search all the way through the Gospels. When, when Jesus dealt with people's leprosy, it is never referred to as healed. It's always referred to as cleansed. And the reason that it's always referred to that way is that leprosy is a type of sin in the Bible and how it, it deadens our sensitivity uh, it, it, it infects the entire body, and there's, there's all kinds of parallels between leprosy and sin within our lives. And, and so uh, that's why in the Old Testament book of Leviticus, 
There was, a, there was a rite when a person was cleansed of their leprosy. They would then go to the priest, and the priest would then uh, turn to perform the ceremony uh, for the man who, uh, on the day of his or her uh, leprosy being cleansed. And, uh, and they would go there and, and uh, perform the ceremony. And the ceremony, as you might remember, as we looked at it in the Old Testament, involved uh, two clean and living birds, uh, cedar wood, scarlet, hyssop, all of these things that come and are associated with, with the cross. And so when, when we look at Jesus and say, I am willing, be cleansed, that's something that we can apply to any sin within our life. That's the context of it. He's dealing with the picture of sin. And we never need to wonder in coming to God and saying, will you forgive me of this sin? Will you and do you have the ability to cleanse me of this sin? And to know that the Lord has the ability, I am willing, and then the willingness to declare and to make us clean. And then as, he, as, the, as the man was cleansed, Jesus strictly warned him and sent him away uh, at once. And he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way, show yourself to the priest. Uh, I mean, make the journey to Jerusalem. It's quite a long journey. And offer your cleansing, for your cleansing, those things which Moses commanded as a testimony, and do this as a testimony uh, to uh, the, uh, the priests. And so he commands him to go there, go to Jerusalem, and, and declare, I was a leper. Jesus healed me of my leprosy. I want to do that two birds in the hyssop and the wooden bowl and the red string thing. Uh, that, that Leviticus talks about. And, and then uh, as, the, as this leper would come in, and remember now, Jesus is sending an absolute stream of these lepers into Jerusalem in the course of his, his ministry now. And the first one comes in there into the temple, and they want to know, uh, I want to offer the sacrifices related to the cleansing of a leper in the day of his cleansing. And all of the priests look at one another, and they say, oh, where is that? In the Bible. For 1,500 years, they had never, ever had to perform that ceremony. Leprosy was and is an incurable disease. We can arrest its progress today, but it was an incurable disease. There are only three records of, uh, of the cleansing of a leper in the Old Testament. And so here, here they come, they get these lepers coming in, and they're now going and turning to Leviticus chapter 14, and now over and over again they're performing this ceremony, and it was all intended to be a message from Jesus to the Jewish religious leaders. The Messiah is here, the Messiah is here, the Messiah is uh, here, and, and, and is a witness to uh, them. And, uh, and however, uh, instead of heeding this, he went out and he began to proclaim it freely. Jesus cleansed me of my leprosy, and he spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city, but was outside in the de uh, deserted places, and they came to him from every uh, direction. 
And so he had asked for it not to be publicized. You think, oh, Jesus will overlook it. Uh, he could use a little bit of uh, publicity in, in, in all of this, and it won't be of any kind of consequence, and yet it, it was of consequence. It, it hindered his ability to move within the land and, and to be as effective as he wanted to be. There, there are no inconsequential uh, disobediences to, uh, to the commands uh, of, of God. We'll stop there tonight. We'll pick it up next time at the start of chapter 2. There's not enough time to uh, jump into the significance of the next event. So if the worship team will come forward, and uh, it will be wonderful to close with a little bit of a meditative set and worshiping the Lord. In the light of what we've looked at this evening, uh, any response to it that we might need to make between us and the Lord, any praise or thanksgiving that fills our heart uh, in terms of His authority and what He's done within our lives or whatever it is that He might want to put upon our hearts this evening.